From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. In a bold and historic step backwards for the cause of peace in the Middle East last Sunday, Morocco was one of four Arab countries meeting in a special summit with Israel and the U.S. Although dissent Iran was central to the discussions held during this meeting, the central issue of Palestine never broached during the summit, which took place in the heart of historic Palestine. Khalil spoke with Moroccan journalist and scholar Samia Erzouki about Morocco's participation in the summit and what might be motivating the Moroccan regime to go against the wishes of its own people. Samia Erzouki is a journalist formerly based in Morocco and a PhD candidate in early modern Northwest African history at UC Davis. Samia, Morocco was among four Arab countries that recently had an official summit in Tel Aviv with the U.S. and Israel. The representatives of UAE, Morocco, Bahrain, and Egypt, all of them signatories of the Abraham Accords of 2020, even went to pay their respects at the tomb of Ben-Gurion, a despised symbol of Zionism throughout the Arab world. Several pro-Palestinian Moroccan movements have grudgingly accepted the state's justification over normalization, including the Islamist Party Justice and Development, as its previous chief Saad-Din al-Uthmani personally attended the signing ceremony of the Abraham Accords as Morocco's then Prime Minister. And yet, God knows, the overwhelming majority of Moroccans must be having heartburn over this. How do you explain such far-reaching capitulation and abandonment of the Palestinian cause, even after this normalization? And is the quid pro quo arranged by the U.S. of justifying colonialism here by colonialism there enough to justify such an abandonment for most Moroccans? So as you point out, for the majority of Moroccans, they are very much and remain pro-Palestine. And those that still dare to take the risk of protesting and you know publicly expressing this position are oftentimes swiftly faced with arrest, harassment. To coincide with this summit, uh, there were a number of protests and footage of these protests all circulated on social media showing protesters getting arrested, beaten, which is sort of unthinkable to even imagine that a few years ago, protesting in support of Palestine and Morocco would be criminalized in such ways. But I think it speaks to the broader state of decision-making in Morocco, which is that the Moroccan people aren't consulted, that the process of making decisions has been so consolidated within the small circle, of calling it a circle I think is hardly even accurate, but that Moroccans are not consulted for it. And Even Moroccan Jewish activists, Sion Asidon, for example, very prominent Moroccan Jewish activist who has been in support of BDS, has faced a lot of pressure for remaining outspoken against the normalization deal. So it fits into this broader authoritarian regression that we're seeing in Morocco. And it's something that I think is important to raise. It's On the one hand, Western countries are applauding these normalization deals with Israel, but what is there to applaud when... Israel is normalizing ties with autocracies and despots. I just read an article a few days ago that an Israeli woman is facing, um, I believe, life sentence in the UAE for drug-related charges. They are forming alliances 
with some of the most violent and repressive regimes in the region. And so one is hard pressed. What's the cost and benefit here? And who's really losing out? I mean, I think if anything, it's those that are in power that are finding themselves bolstered and who have manipulated and used this alliance to win favor and to make political and though they claim diplomatic advancements, though that's debatable. In Morocco, however, I think what we're seeing is something very interesting. And there's a point that I always like to raise about this, which is that Morocco's normalization deal with Israel was a formality. Morocco and Israel have benefited from ties for decades. Hassan II was known to have provided intelligence. The previous monarch who died in 1999, and now his son is in power. Correct. And he was known, and we know now officially, that he provided intelligence to the Mossad. Moroccans are able to travel freely to and from Israel. Morocco is a major Jewish pilgrimage site, so many Israelis come to Morocco freely, no issues. So the normalization deal was a formality. In fact, I think we could even argue that it was Morocco who ended up winning more by getting that recognition from the Trump administration of the Western Sahara as sort of like the major token and trophy of this deal. But then what we're seeing right now, and this is sort of the unfortunate reality, which is that in its normalization deal with Israel, Morocco has drawn on anti-Semitic tropes in which they expect and believe that through these sort of globalized Jewish networks internationally, that Morocco can rely on Israel to advocate and lobby for it on its behalf in these diplomatic spats that have unfolded with Germany, with Spain, with France, even now recently with the US. So Morocco has kind of just assumed that in its normalizing ties with Israel, that Israel will serve as its sort of lobby as its pit bull to advocate and promote its interests. And like I said, this draws on anti-Semitic tropes. And even, and despite that, we're still seeing sort of this deal move forward and these agreements and what have you. And it's coming at the expense of the livelihoods of Palestinians, of Sahrawis, Moroccans themselves. And Moroccan Jews themselves, like I said, have expressed criticism about the nature of this deal. I'll raise one point, which is something that has not been acknowledged and really discussed, which is the highest ranking Moroccan Jewish official in Morocco. His name is Andre Azoulay. He serves currently as one of the senior royal advisors to King Mohammed VI. Previously, he served as a senior royal advisor to the previous king, Hassan II. He was nowhere to be seen publicly in any event or ceremony celebrating or recognizing this deal. Back when this happened, I believe it was December 2020, there was a high delegation visit from Israel in which Jared Kushner was also in attendance that arrived in Morocco. I believe it was January 2021, right before Biden was inaugurated as president. And in this visit in Morocco, Andre Azoulay, again, I reiterate, the highest ranking, most senior Moroccan Jewish official is nowhere to be seen. He has not made a public statement taking any position on this normalization deal. So it leaves one wondering, are even the members of the community that are sort of integral in this deal that have forged these ties, that are, are critical in these ties between Israel and Morocco, if they themselves are not even supportive of it, what does that say? It opens up a lot of different branches to delve into. So what does it say about Azoulay, who's very famous? As you said, he's been there for generations. His family's been there for generations at the 
as the right hand, really, of the monarchy, monarch after monarch. What does it say, in your opinion, that he's being so discreet about his role in this rapprochement, or is he just embarrassed? Is this weakening him and weakening other Moroccan Jews? I think it speaks to the fact that, from what I've heard from sources, which is that the King of Morocco has not convened a meeting of his royal advisors in years, three, four years maybe, and that voices that would normally express dissent or question certain policy moves, those voices have been entirely pushed out and marginalized. So it's not just Andre Azoulay, it's a number of senior royal advisors and figures who were once in this inner circle who would offer the king advice and say, listen, maybe this step is not the best way to go about it, or just to be the voice of reason. All of those voices have been entirely marginalized and pushed out. What has resulted is this echo chamber of yes men who, out of fear of losing that access, out of fear of losing whatever (laughs) shreds of power and wealth that they have, are just going along with these policies that are erratic, that break away from precedence in so many ways. And it goes back to the fact that power and decision-making, again, has become so increasingly centralized in Morocco. And I'll raise one recent example, which is that there were two United Nations General Assembly resolutions about Ukraine. The first was to condemn Russia. The second was to call for the urgent need for humanitarian assistance. Morocco, which loves to call itself the first country to recognize U.S. independence, the same country that stood alongside the U.S. in the Cold War and under Bush with the quote-unquote war on terror, all of these sort of historical alliances that Morocco has had with the U.S. For these two resolutions, Morocco not only did not vote, it not only not abstained, it just did not show up to the votes and issued this sort of non-statement statement saying, well, we're going to sort of take this neutral position, going against not only precedents, but almost the entire global consensus. Now, the Morocco of even 2015, this was unheard of. And so the direction that Morocco is heading in diplomatically, politically, economically, and I'm talking both in domestic level and, you know, in terms of how it's managing its, its relations with its allies, signifying this sort of completely disheveled and erratic strategy and logic, which I think emanates from the fact that the voices, like someone like Andre Azoulay, who has been in that position for decades, who has experience, who would likely have been consulted for something like this, by this I mean the normalization deal, but also his expertise in navigating foreign relations would have been consulted, but these voices are absent now. That's very interesting what you just said about, that was one of my questions, Morocco's stance vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine. You would think that it would be an easy call for Morocco, who's always allied itself with the West regardless. For Algeria, it would be more difficult. But for Morocco to stay neutral, how do you explain that? To call it neutral, I think, is even an overstatement. I mean, Algeria officially abstained. In the actual vote, they abstained. Morocco did not even show up to the vote. And so even in their abstention, it comes off as spineless. Like, they don't even have the gall to actually go and sit and take a neutral position in front of the international community. So they just don't show up to the vote. And then they issue this statement that says, our vote is not up for interpretation. Take that as you will, which is absurd. And you know what's interesting is that 
last week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to Morocco as part of his regional tour. And there was a press conference with him and Morocco's foreign minister, Nasser Boreta. One journalist asked Nasser Boreta a question and asked him, why has Morocco not taken a stronger position in condemning Russia and going against the grain of the international and global consensus? His immediate reaction was to laugh. He chuckled. And it was so perturbing to even... Secretary of State Blinken, that he stopped in the middle of his remarks to look at him and say, did I miss something? And it was just this awkward moment that I think just reflects sort of the nature of Moroccan diplomacy. It's just disturbing, I think. If you are the U.S. or the EU and Morocco is sort of heading down this direction of overnight, just breaking away from historical precedents, that does not make one a good ally. How are you going to maintain alliances and rely on these countries that have supported you. Let's not forget the fact that when Morocco was facing protests during the uprisings in 2011, that the EU and the US were forcefully and very positively applauding King Mohammed VI's quote-unquote reform agenda, saying this constitutional reform is great. Look at Morocco. Morocco is the model of the region. And here we are over 11, 12 years later, What's happened? Morocco is one of the most regressive and authoritarian regimes in the region right now. You cannot even post a single critical tweet or comment on Facebook without facing the risk of arrest. Just recently, Saeed Al-Alami, an activist who posts on Facebook how critical of sort of this mounting repression, was detained for 48 hours without access to food and water and is now facing pretrial attention over charges of quote-unquote, insulting public institutions. The Morocco of today is comparable, if not worse, than the Morocco of the years of lead under Hassan II in the 1980s. Granted, there seems to be a consistent attraction for dictatorship and political oppression anywhere in the world. That (laughs) reminds me of Trump, who never met a dictator he didn't love. But beyond that, what is to be lost for Morocco to go along with the general consensus? What is it? I can understand Saudi Arabia, some of the Gulf monarchies have strong ties with Russia because of the oil policies they try to work in tandem with Russia. I can understand Algeria being former almost ally of Russia, finding it difficult to go against Russia. But Morocco, I don't understand what would be lost for the regime in Morocco to just say, yeah, we're, we're against this war. What is it, in your opinion? Khalil, it's a question that so many of us are asking, both publicly and privately. My guess here is that Morocco, I think, is overplaying its hand. It believes still that it occupies this geostrategic site in which the continents of Europe and Africa converge, in which the Mediterranean Atlantic converge. But geostrategically speaking, Morocco is a very critical and important site. And the reason why I cite that is because there have been recurring reports that have been circulating in multiple media outlets and no official comment has been made to either confirm or deny these reports, but that there are multiple countries that are vying for establishing a joint military base in Morocco. So you have that one point. The second point is that Morocco realized that in manipulating and weaponizing and using migration, that it could get the EU to its knees and capitulate to its interest and its demands. And we saw that in the last sort of interview we spoke about uh, when Morocco opened up the borders, allowing hundreds and thousands of migrants to enter Europe. 
So then migration's the other thing. The third point here is that because of the war happening right now in Ukraine, phosphate prices have risen to, I believe, unprecedented costs, much like fuel prices. And Morocco is one of the top producers and exporters of phosphates internationally, critical source for fertilizers, which is also a critical source for producing food, agricultural production. Between these three sort of assets within the hands of Morocco, I mean, I think what they're aiming to do is using those cards to get their allies in the EU and the US to take a stronger stance to support its position on the Western Sahara. Yes. So it's sort of a, a blackmail scheme where we're not going to give you our collaboration here because we want stuff from you. Yeah, I think terming it blackmail diplomacy is, is quite appropriate. Because <laughs> you, you were referring to earlier, some of our opposition, at least from courageous voices in, in Morocco, under the hashtag normalization is betrayal, Moroccan activists and citizens condemn the kingdom's participation in the Arab-Israeli summit at the Negev. I'm quoting a tweet here. So why do some voices in Morocco, authorized or not, continue to deny the fact that Morocco has indeed abandoned this, its sacred Palestinian cause to become Israel's protege? <laughs> this was by Moroccan journalist, famous journalist, Ali Lamrabat, tweeted it in French. Ali Lamrabat has been in trouble with the regime for at least a couple of decades now. He's been thrown in jail. He's very courageous. He said these things, even though he's used to the kind of repercussions. Tell us a bit more about, about him and the other voices that you started telling us about and how they're going against the grain and risking their professions, perhaps their, their freedom. Well, because of the situation and the circumstances that Ali al has had to endure as a journalist, he's sort of been forced into this exile. And he is among many journalists, Moroccan activists and journalists, who have had to leave the country in order to be able to safely live and express themselves. Others include, for example, Moroccan journalist Hajar Raisouni. She was previously arrested outside of the gynecologist and accused of having an illegal abortion. Authorities forced her to undergo an invasive gynecological exam against her will, in which she characterizes as a state-sanctioned rape, and eventually sentenced her to a year in prison before the king pardoned her. Uh, she has left Morocco. Her uncle, currently Suleiman Raisouni, a former editor-in-chief of the same newspaper that she worked with, Akhbar Lyum, is in jail, as well as the publisher of that same publication, Tofiq Bouachrin, in jail. Others that have left include Imad Situ. He was a journalist with Le Desk and other publications. He was wrapped into the trial that Omar Radi, also another Moroccan journalist currently serving six years in prison, faced over espionage and rape charges. Imad initially was brought in as a witness and turned into a suspect, and so he has left. And there are many, many others. To be able to express oneself freely in Morocco requires safe distance. Those that remain in Morocco continue to do so, do so at great risk. And like I said recently, the example of Saeed Al-Alami, who was an activist currently in pretrial detention, and there are a number of other cases. And it's almost like every day we wake up, it's someone else who is being arrested and charged for 
quote unquote, insulting public institutions, which has become sort of this overarching, vague law that is used to criminalize free speech and press freedom in Morocco. And so Ali Murabit, you know, is able to continue expressing himself in this way because of the safe distance that he has, though that doesn't mean that things are completely perfect. I mean, I include myself among them as several Moroccans who continue to express ourselves freely and criticize the regime. And in exchange, what we end up getting is targeted, defamed, harassed by state-sponsored media outlets. And that harassment and defamation spans many, many horrifying examples. Moroccan political cartoonist known by the name of Crabman, who was based in Denmark, just recently a publication posted a video of him and his two-year-old daughter and used it as a way to sort of defame him and invade his privacy. Others are accused of being foreign agents, of spies, of collaborating with intelligence agencies. Others, um, for example, are just simply targeted with surveillance and images and videos of that surveillance are then later published on these outlets. And so This is the state of affairs in Morocco, unfortunately. Those journalists that are actually producing critical and investigative work um, have either been thrown in jail or forced out of the country. And now the state and the landscape of media in Morocco is this tabloid-esque media landscape in which the state is complicit in both granting them this freedom to operate despite the fact that they themselves are violating Moroccan laws that criminalize defamation and the invasion of privacy, while also providing them with subsidies. So this is what press freedom and freedom of expression is looking like in Morocco. And like I reiterate again, this is not even under the years of lead of Hassan II was this a thing. Granted, you know, the situation in the 1980s was horrific. People were getting rounded up, disappeared, no trials, no charges, infamous prison known as Tazma Mart became this sort of ghost haunting space in which many political prisoners died, languished. Those that survived went on to write memoirs talking about their trials and tribulations. Today, Morocco does this openly. Morocco criminalizes and has silenced any opposition behind laws and the reforms that its allies previously applauded. To come back to the recent summit between the four Arab countries and the U.S. and Israel and Tel Aviv, Iran was invoked as a common denominator of bringing the four regimes and Israel together. But what does that have to do with Morocco? A diplomatic crisis erupted between Tehran and Rabat In 2018, when Morocco accused Iran of using the Lebanese Hezbollah party to train Polisario Front separatists, Polisario being the uh, resistance movement in the Western Sahara, an accusation both Tehran and Hezbollah denied. Is this a red herring or does it have any substance to it? I never imagined that Morocco would have, you know, being so far from the Gulf, and from Iran would have a beef with Iran. You know, the history of this goes back to the Iranian revolution. I mean, one of the countries that the Shah stopped in um, when he fled Iran was Morocco, and King Hassan II welcomed him. There's that history. And then there's also the fact that, I believe it was in the early 2000s, when Morocco officially cut diplomatic ties with Iran, claiming that Shia imams were proselytizing in Morocco and spreading uh, Shia doctrine. 
that happened in the early 2000s. And then I believe things began to warm up, though nothing very deep or profound. Morocco and Iran haven't necessarily had deep relations following the revolution. And then, yes, as you mentioned, 2018, these allegations, baseless, because they never provided any evidence for this. They simply issued a statement. It was a position that they took knowing that in doing so, they could pander to the Trump administration at the time, during a time when it looked like the U.S. could potentially invade Iran. It was an aftermath of canceling the Iran deal. And so it was like this particular moment, I think, in which Morocco felt that it could insert itself in this particular issue in order to gain favor. As I mentioned, Morocco provided no evidence for these claims, but it's also ironic because depending on what the global political climate is, Morocco has leveled a series of accusations against the Polisario. During the Cold War, Morocco accused the Polisario of being communists and extensions of the Soviet Union. During the War on Terror, Morocco accused the Polisario of collaborating with Al-Qaeda. And now, because of the climate that exists in the world today in which Iran has been on the receiving end of these portrayals and um, of these positions of these other global countries that associating the Polisario with Iran is, it lines with sort of the global consensus. So that's what Morocco has historically done. So you're, if one tries to wrap this around their mind, you're saying that this same group, you know, at one point is communist and then at one point Sunni aligned with Al-Qaeda and now aligned with Hezbollah and Iran. It's laughable. And that's journalist and scholar Samia Arzouki speaking with Khalil Bendib about Morocco's participation in a recent summit with Israel, the U.S., United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. So the Moroccan foreign minister's closing statement at this uh, summit was interpreted over social media as an invitation of Israel to the disputed territory of Western Sahara, because he said, well, we hope the next meeting will happen in another desert, since the Negev, Naqab in Arabic, is, is a desert, and that's where the first one, the first summit happened. The next meeting might be here at this other occupied territory <laughs> in Western Sahara. And the thing I didn't know until recently is that Tel Aviv seems to be strangely silent about the conflict in the Western Sahara, which prompts this question, how can Israel be ambivalent about Morocco's occupation when Morocco is gladly conceding everything to Israel? Well, Morocco stopped just short of, you know, supporting forthright this they still pay lip, lip service right and also formally the king of morocco chairs the committee 
which was established as this sort of mechanism, I think by extension of the Arab League, to promote the Palestinian cause. He still remains the chair of this committee. And the committee Al-Quds in Arabic is Jerusalem. So there's this strong religious significance to Jerusalem for all Muslims, as it has with Jews as well. Right, and considering that one of the titles of the King of Morocco is Emir al-Mu'minin, the commander of the faith. Commander of the faithful, yes. <laughs> okay. They're both maybe perhaps stopping short of outright and forthcomingly really supporting their tactics and their strategies and the particular disputes that they're involved in. I mean, uh, Morocco hasn't taken a position on Israeli settlements, for example. Israel hasn't, as far as I know, initiated or announced any plans to open up a consulate in the Western Sahara, which would effectively be seen as um, a stamp of approval, which also reminds me, by the way, I mean, to take a few steps back to when Trump issued the proclamation recognizing the Western Sahara as Moroccan, there was a ceremony in which they inaugurated this U.S. consulate in Dakhla, which is in the Western Sahara. Officially now, we can say, after the Congress passed it and the appropriations bill for this year, that the U.S. Congress has denied the use of federal funds for the construction of a U.S. consulate in the Western Sahara. And this was an effort that was a very much bipartisan on both sides of the aisle. And in fact, some of the most critical voices that have been calling on the Biden administration to take a more forceful stance in terms of either saying, listen, we're going to uphold this position or we're going to reverse it, have been actually Republican and Democrat, particularly Senators Patrick Leahy and Senator Jim Inhofe. That was just sort of a footnote. But I think that they both are understanding of the fact that the international consensus about both of these disputes involving sovereignty, self-determination, put them against the grain and at odds with international law. And there's no denying this. They both know this. And internationally speaking, consensus is wavering. And I still remember just last summer during the wave of attacks in Gaza, seeing this outpouring of public support, even among very public figures and celebrities who in my mind, growing up in the U.S., I never imagined to see something like that. My first protest ever was in 2000 in front of the White House um, after the killing of Mohammed al-Durra. And that image that became so famous with the young boy in the arms of his father trying to shield him from gunfire it was in the second intifada. During that time, and it's like to see now celebrities so outspoken in supporting Palestine, that's signifying this discursive shift globally that is raising questions about the legality of this based off of the very laws that were created to protect sovereignty that they claim to be upholding. Which is also, I think it's interesting that Morocco cited the terms territorial integrity and sovereignty and its justification for why it chose to take a neutral position on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Because I think those terms resonate very well with Morocco. Burita said he will visit Israel again soon to upgrade Morocco's diplomatic representation in the country. Burita being the foreign minister of Morocco. This at a time when Moroccan ties with Algeria, its intimate neighbor to the east, keep deteriorating drastically. What is the end game for the Moroccan regime and why are they putting seemingly all their eggs into 
this Israeli basket, you started telling us how they believe the old canard that somehow Jews worldwide are omnipotent and all-powerful. But beyond that, what explains this incredible fervor for going against the grain, for making friends with the Israeli occupier and enemies with the brother next door? I think it raises a very important point that the priorities of the Moroccan regime are driven by survival and maintaining and sustaining power. In a normal world, you would want to sort of focus on improving ties with your neighbor. Instead, Morocco is preparing for joint military exercises with the U.S. Algeria is preparing with joint military exercises with Russia. And meanwhile, the ceasefire in the Western Sahara has been broken since 2020. That in its own doesn't bode well. And we know in these situations, it's the people who will suffer. And by putting all of its eggs, so to speak, in its uh, interest in really strengthening and deepening ties with Israel um, is driven out of self-preservation because, like I said, it's that deeply held, again, anti-Semitic belief that by drawing on Jewish networks that somehow you can shape world policy. To speak of that, in 2019... I believe it was Morocco for the first time in many years appointed a chief rabbi. Morocco still has a Jewish community, though it's dwindled significantly, but I think estimates are at about 7,000. The rabbi that they chose to appoint is a man by the name of Rabbi Pinto, who was previously convicted in Israel over charges of fraud and served a sentence, which he pled guilty and he didn't even end up fully serving his whole entire sentence. But this Rabbi Pinto comes from a historic family of rabbinical lineage with roots in Asuera in Morocco, very prominent Moroccan Jewish family. And this Rabbi Pinto comes to Morocco after being released from jail for charges related to fraud, is appointed chief rabbi of Morocco. Now, Again, to go back to how decision-making is being made, in that vein, Rabbi Pinto is identifying himself as the chief rabbi of Morocco. Then you have the community of Moroccan Jews led by also royal advisor Serge Berdigo, Moroccan Jewish official, who issues a statement to say, there is no chief rabbi of Morocco. Rabbi Pinto's only role is to oversee the kashruts, and the kashruts is the process of, you know, making sure food is kosher. That's his mandate. That's it. He is not a chief rabbi. When the chief rabbi is going to be announced, it will be a decision that we decide as Moroccan Jews, both in Morocco and beyond, and we will be the ones to sort of announce it and formalize it. So... Rabbi Pinto is not the chief rabbi of Morocco, according to Serge Berdigo. Again, showing the sort of lack of communication and involvement of people who are impacted by a decision within decision-making in the process. I definitely digressed over there. But the reason why I bring him up is because Rabbi Pinto is very present on social media and he is constantly traveling. And there are several instances in which he's meeting with uh, members of Congress, with diplomats. 
And so if he continues, which he is, to present himself as a chief rabbi of Morocco, in what capacity is he meeting with these officials? Is he lobbying on behalf of Morocco? And if so, shouldn't he be registered with the Department of Justice Foreign Agent Registration Act? Is he using the cover of rabbi to be able to meet with influential policymakers in order to shape and advocate for Moroccan interests? I mean, it opens up a lot of questions. Like I said, he travels around in a private jet that he openly posts on his Instagram. You know, even the foreign minister of Morocco doesn't travel in a private jet. This is, again, going back to the point that I'm saying is that Morocco is relying on this anti-Semitic trope. And it's instrumentalizing and using Moroccan Jews in a way that... Considering the history of Morocco's complicitness in a number of what some historians have characterized as pogroms against Moroccan Jews during the time when Morocco was under occupation by Vichy France and Nazis, it's horrifying. Considering that even just a few years ago, in an effort to memorialize the Moroccan Jews who were killed by an extension of the violence of the Holocaust, when Vichy France was occupying Morocco, a number of Moroccans were attempting to establish a memorial and authorities tore it down. This is the country that you want to normalize ties with. And I think it begs the question, who's winning and who's gaining in all of this? Yeah, there's a complete disconnect here between the authorities and the people they're supposed to be representing. And one of the things the the, the Moroccan regime loves to sort of reproduce and reproduce this line that King Mohammed V during World War II was this protector of Jews fleeing Nazi Germany. And we have historical evidence that Moroccan officials collaborated with Nazi officials in killing and expelling Jews back to concentration camps. To even bring that history up, it's unfathomable today because there's no space for it. No one wants to hear that history because it's inconvenient. But you had pogroms in Jarada and Wishda that resulted in dozens, if not hundreds, of the deaths of Moroccan Jews, but also the remnants of the prisons in which both Moroccan and European Jews being held in Morocco during uh, World War II were conveniently reused and recycled by King Hassan II to be notorious prisons that held political prisoners in which torture allegedly took place. This is a history that is inconvenient to shield and cloak it all with this surface level normalization that is very blatantly just concerned with self-preservation, self-interest. It's not concerned with the interests of Moroccan Jews. Or Morocco in general. <laughs> Moroccan populace in general. Something that really is frustrating for me, and I say this as someone who has Moroccan Jewish heritage, is that on the Moroccan side, Moroccan Jews faced violence. And then thinking that Israel was going to be a safe haven, they arrived to Israel. And the first thing that the Israelis do is to quarantine them and lock them in these cages because they were seen as being inferior to Ashkenazi Jews that were coming from Europe. And so there was this racialization of not just Moroccan Jews, but Arab Jews in general. And so doubly victims of violence by both the Moroccan and Israeli states. And so it's just very unfortunate that this history is completely swept under the rug for the sake of promoting and upholding the status quo. One major fascination, these four Arab regimes that were in, in this summit two weeks ago, 
seem to share about Israel is its technological prowess when it comes to keeping entire populations such as Palestinians under their thumb thanks to impressive uh, sophistication armament and surveillance technology. Israel has become, after all, a beacon for oppressive minoritarian regimes <laughs> worldwide. As we speak, the UAE is investing colossal sums into Israeli industry for that reason. Last year, Morocco was caught spying on the cell phones of French President Macron and other public figures in France using malware made by Israel's NSO group. The French newspaper Le Monde reported the cell phones of President Macron and 15 then members of the French government may have been among potential targets in 2019 of surveillance by Pegasus spyware on behalf of a Moroccan security agency. There was this official investigation conducted by the French government. Have you heard what developed after that? So recently what we do know is that Morocco filed a lawsuit in a French court, a defamation lawsuit against the publications that were reporting on this. And because it was part of this coalition of publications under Forbidden Stories, so I believe it was a number of uh, newspapers, including I think Amnesty International, if I'm not mistaken, the court dismissed and didn't accept Morocco's suit because I believe there's a provision in French law that prevents foreign states from filing defamation lawsuits. That's sort of the latest. But aside from that, one of the more ironic and interesting parts of that story is, in addition to allegedly spying on Emmanuel Macron and a number of French officials and French journalists, French-based Moroccan activists, if you look at the list that was published of all of those that were targeted by Morocco with this NSO group surveillance software, that among the list includes the king himself and includes several members of the royal family. But most damning, I think, is the fact that the king was targeted. Now, it's one of two things. This is, again, something that was swept under the rug. For me, as an observer, as someone who follows Morocco, I was gobsmacked because what does this mean? Does this mean that Morocco's intelligence and security chief is spying on the king? If so, that's egregious. That's a major transgression of love of the power balance. And I think if it was any other country, they would be under investigation. That didn't happen. Or did his name come up to sort of deflect and try to discredit these allegations? Either way, there is an undeniable fact that Morocco has been on this train of using surveillance many, many years ago. And it started in 2012. I was among a group of folks in a citizen media collective called Memfet Kinch. The main goal and subject of our uh, citizen media collective was to amplify the protests of the uprisings that were taking place in Morocco, so the February 20th movement. And in 2012, after we received this award from Google for the work that we were doing, we were targeted with surveillance. At the time, we didn't know it because we just received this document. Those of us that opened it, it was blank. And then we started to realize after it was analyzed by Citizen Lab and they confirmed indeed it was a spyware. At that time, Morocco had purchased that particular software from an Italian-based group called Hacking Team, which back then openly and you know proudly advertised that it sold surveillance technologies to governments. 
this is not the first rodeo for Morocco. And I think it's because Morocco emerged unscathed from that episode with that sort of impunity. It went on to go from targeting activists to targeting foreign heads of state. Now, nothing has come of it. I think what we can see and is very clear is that publicly there has been a very sort of coldness of ties between Morocco and France. Remember when Emmanuel Macron was first selected, the first country he visited as president was Morocco. And there was several back and forth visits between the king and Macron. But recently, within the past few years, I don't believe that there has been any official meeting or delegation. Publicly, France has not really joined this attempt at legitimizing Morocco's claims over the Western Sahara, though it still sort of tacitly kind of advocates and supports it in the Security Council, though we're not seeing anything beyond that. But this is also because France is it's in the throes of an election cycle right now. And it's interesting to see that this hasn't really emerged as a major point in the campaign, though I was expecting to see how in debates and in the campaign constituents and the press would engage with Macron and the other candidates about the fact that what are we doing about the fact that we have these reports that Morocco just targeted the French president with uh, surveillance software. So the latest, like I said, is that the French court rejected Morocco's attempt at the defamation lawsuit. Perhaps in the coming weeks, as the French presidential campaign advances, it'll emerge the, as a discussion. It's probably not on the radar because Morocco is seen as a friendly country among North African countries, certainly an ally. I raise the point again that recent behaviors of Morocco prove otherwise, like the position it took on Ukraine. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like Israel. It's a one-way street with Israel. You do for Israel, Israel doesn't necessarily do for you. Look at its stance vis-a-vis -vis the Ukraine. It flies in the face of the Western world, which is so unconditionally supportive of, of Israel, it doesn't keep it from saying, no, I will not take sides. I'm still friends with Putin. <laughs> Morocco seems to be developing the same sort of attitude as Israel. I don't know. It's very interesting. Spain has just changed its policy vis-a-vis -vis Morocco's occupation of the Western Sahara. Tell us a little bit what happened. Last time we talked, you explained to us how popular support for self-determination in the Western Sahara was keeping the government from going too far supporting the Moroccan government. Right. It's interesting now that enough time has passed and we've seen sort of the end result of Morocco manipulating and weaponizing migration because Spain was hosting the head of the Polisario, Brahim Ghali, for medical treatment. And here we are. Morocco and Spain have been contending with very tense relations in the past year or two. And this led to sort of a, a shuffling of the foreign minister. So foreign minister, I believe, was pushed out, replaced. A new foreign minister, just a few weeks ago, Spain issues a statement in which they state that they recognize Morocco's autonomy plan as the most credible solution to resolving the conflict just shy of recognizing sovereignty now. So 
it's important to clarify that they just said that Morocco's autonomy plan is the credible solution. This triggered widespread uproar, not just within Spain, but within the Spanish government. It has caused major discord within the coalition government, but also outrage among the opposition. Spanish civil society, again, notorious for being among the most supportive of the Sahrawi cause, up in arms about it. And last week, actually, Spain's foreign minister was supposed to be visiting Morocco. And the day of, I believe, the Spanish journalists have already arrived expecting that this was going to happen. He cancels the visit last minute. And then Morocco says, well, the reason why it was canceled is because actually the Spanish prime minister is coming to Morocco on Friday, April 8th. From what I've heard from folks and what I've followed, it's caused a lot of dissent. And apparently, you know, the usual voices that are consulted within the Spanish government about the country's position on the conflict, which, by the way, is a product of its own colonial rule in the territory. (laughs) And by the standards of international law, Spain is still legally and officially the de jure administrator of Western Sahara, Morocco's de facto administrator. But in terms of international law, Spain still has the responsibility of administering the territory because it was the former colonizer. So they have the whole procedure and process of coming up with decisions and policies about it. But apparently those that are usually consulted were not. I think that the visit on Friday will be quite telling. It will give us a lot more insight into sort of the direction where things are heading. But it's definitely not something that was done in consultation, neither with the Spanish people nor even with the Spanish officials. So one wonders what was given in exchange. We know that there must have been some sort of a transaction. Morocco wants to give off the impression that this was sort of a benevolent position that the Spanish took, though. Reports suggest otherwise, and whether it's Morocco promised to sort of clamp down on migration, or also there are several reports circulating that Spain had been perturbed by the fact that Morocco and Israel uh, were in talks about opening up a military base near Melilla, one of the Spanish colonies in Morocco. Those reports were never confirmed or denied, though a member of the opposition in Spain sent a formal question and inquiry to the Spanish government, asking them about verifying these reports. And the Spanish government didn't even recognize the question. They neither addressed it, they didn't respond to it, they didn't confirm it, they didn't deny it. There's a lot of reports that are spreading about what Morocco gave in exchange, but I think the nature of this and the future of it will become clear on Friday, though. I've heard from folks who say, you know, don't be surprised to hear that Spain will sort of take a step back from that position. Again, from the Moroccan side of things, things are so erratic. It's hard to predict. Who knows? But I think it's upsetting for the Spanish because this is a cause and an issue that many are invested in. And also because many Sahrawis live in Spain. I guess we'll see on Friday what happens. The blackmail, the threat of uh, opening up the spigot of immigration, just as the Turks have done on the other side of Europe, seems to be working, possibly. That was also a threat infamously made by uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi.
before his demise that he said if you guys are mean to me i'm gonna open the spigot so it's a common threat and it's one that is very credible to uh european governments and finally this question i've always had in the back of my mind which is maybe a little more psychological or psychoanalytical and like its direct neighbors certainly algeria morocco has claimed the direct and full mental of former empire, the Muahideen and Murabitin, the Almohads and the Almoravids, who, which conquered southern Europe and sprung from Moroccan soil. In your opinion, does this historical fact still figure in Morocco's historical imaginary, despite its more humble status recently as a former colony or former colonial protectorate? And then can that help explain the predilection, on, especially on the part of the monarchy, to side instinctively and identify with the side that's winning, with the current superpowers, regardless of Morocco's geographical position? Historically, in the process of state formation in Morocco, when it gained independence in 1956, this memory and veneration of Al-Andalus, right, when there was this moment in time uh, when the Iberian Peninsula was under Arab Muslim control, has been always embedded in the fabric of Moroccan identity and Moroccan culture. There's actually a really great book by scholar Eric Calderwell called Colonial and Andalus, in which he goes into sort of deep detail about whether it's music, whether it's clothing, whether it's architectural aesthetics, food, how all of that was solidified in this process of state formation in Morocco, emanated and drew from this history of an Andalus. There has always been that. It's always been there. I think Morocco always looks to its imperial past to sort of justify and position itself and to look back on it as something that belonged to them at one point. And perhaps there is that sort of desire to recreate those conditions, but the world order has changed. Though historically Morocco, even in the aftermath of that, you know, in the 16th century, has always been really cognizant and aware of the global centers of power. And Morocco has always successfully navigated those global political dynamics by a lot, allying itself with the winning side. When there is no clear winner, then Morocco has always historically also been very good at manipulating those interests and those powers against one another. Most famous example, which is sort of one of the topics that I study in the 16th century, is when the Sultan of Morocco at the time, Ahmed al-Mansur, would manipulate Queen Elizabeth I of England and her fears and her contention with King Philip II of Spain. He was constantly kind of pitting them against one another. And he ended up emerging as one of the most powerful sultans in Moroccan history because of that. So if Morocco is not allying itself with the winning side, then it's manipulating the power dynamics. And I think that it serves as a useful lesson for what's happening today. Perhaps that is a useful lens to understand the fact that it hasn't taken a strong position on um, Ukraine and that Maybe it does see Russia as a formidable world power in the face of the U.S. and is hedging its bets and just sort of waiting to see which one will emerge victorious and, of course, defend its interests. 
Samiar Zouki is a journalist formerly based in Morocco and a PhD candidate in early modern Northwest African history at UC Davis. She spoke with Khalil Bendib. You can hear the extended version of this interview at statushour.com. That's statushour.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.